Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Leslie Steen. Leslie Steen joined Trout Unlimited in April of 2016, where as the Northwest Wyoming Program Director, she works collaboratively with a broad suite of partners on on on-the-ground stream restoration and reconnection projects for native trout. Leslie has lived in Jackson Hole since 2007. Most recently, she was the communications manager at the Jackson Hold Land Trust for four years, where she led and expanded communications and outreach efforts for the organization. Leslie's previous work experience also includes fisheries monitoring with the Lolo National Forest, environmental consulting, science communication, producing an adventure film festival, and outdoor education with Outward Bound. Leslie enjoys spending time in the Tetons and on the Snake River with her husband, Scott, and son, Oliver fishing, skiing, climbing, and playing music in her band, The Minor Keys. She serves as vice president of the board of the Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation and is also a member of the Jackson Hole Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Collective. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you more. Yeah, same. I'm always really interested about how people got interested in fish to begin with. So where did you first get interested in fisheries work? So I first started to get interested in fisheries work on a trip to Alaska. Um, I was working for Outward Bound in North Carolina at the time, and they had an instructor fund where you could get some help to go on an expedition. And I went to visit a friend of mine who I knew from my Knowles course. She was living in Haines, Alaska at the time. And so I went with her on what ended up being just the two of us on a sea kayaking expedition. Mm-hmm. And, um, on that trip, a couple things happened. I met some of her friends um, who were women that worked for Alaska Department of Fish and Game. I don't, I don't actually know what their department is called, but they're, they're essentially game and fish department in Alaska mm-hmm. um, and loved it. And then a salmon jumped over my boat um, <laughs> as I was sea kayaking. And I had been thinking about going back to grad school and really wanting to do something in applied science, not um, not something more research or theoretical oriented, but something hands-on and practical. And so after that trip, I decided, well, you know, people seem to love fisheries. If you work in fisheries, you get to be around rivers and streams and water all the time. And so that's how I decided to go to grad school for fisheries. I think that's what this is the main reason I got into fish. I'm like, well, I can always be in around water if I study fish. So let's do this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, I would say my program at MSU Bozeman was with the fish co-op unit. And so um, the other grad students, I would say about half came into the program interested in, in the conservation side and, and in the science and the biology side and the other half, you know, grew up fishing and always knew they wanted to work yeah. with fish. And so I think it was interesting. I mean, particularly, I would say, I feel like there were more women that came to it kind of from the conservation side yeah. than having grown up fishing. Yeah, for sure. I was looking through your CV and you've worked for a wide variety of organizations, both federal and then private and for environmental consulting. I was curious how those experiences have prepared you for your current work at Trout Unlimited, which is an NGO. I think that the work that I did previous to Trout Unlimited at the Jackson Hole Land Trust 
um, had the most direct correlation with the work that I do today. Um, I think that land trusts have similar perspectives and tones and way of working with people where generally if you're seeking to do a project, you're looking for something that's solution oriented, something that kind of meets people where they are and offers them some sort of incentive to work with you on a conservation outcome, you know, with, with land trusts, typically conservation easements. And I think that that, you know, that's why that work resonated with me, but I, of course, wanted to make it back to, to water and fish. But I, the other part of that work that I feel like helped prepare me for my current career is just, you know, the importance of relationships and building trust with landowners and donors and supporters and grassroots and volunteers. I think that's really important and partners as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think that helped me, um, you know, particularly when I first got started at Trout Unlimited here in Jackson, I was able to hit the ground running because I had already been working for a community-based nonprofit. So that certainly helped. And then, and then I feel like the other things with it that helped are, you know, having worked in communications, that has helped me in my own work, just making sure that when I do projects that we're, we're recognizing folks and publicizing our successes locally and getting people excited about the work. You know, it's not necessarily something that was like in my job description when I started, but I just witnessed firsthand how important that part of the work can be to just generate excitement and more collaborations and more opportunities. So the other jobs that I feel like help prepare me um, to work at Trout Unlimited or had some skills that were transferable, you know, to some degree, when I I worked for an interdisciplinary science institute at Montana State, Mm -hmm. and I think just understanding a little bit about grants and grant funded projects and deliverables and just kind of understanding that piece of piece of things, I feel like working for the Lowell National Forest gave me some good perspective on, you know, what are, where folks that work from, for federal agencies, where are they coming from and what are agency priorities? And then in a strange way, you know, the time that I worked for an adventure film festival, the Alpinist Film Mm -hmm. Festival in Jackson, I was the film festival producer and I stumbled on that job, did not really have, didn't have a background in it, Truly. But, you know, I think that what that helped me with was just, you know, understanding that I could figure out how to do things, no matter what it was, if there was something, something that needed to get fixed, something that needed to, you know, get procured, that there's usually a way to make things happen. And I think that I have to do that all the time working on projects, you know, where things, strange things happen on projects, like, We're dealing with concrete issues right now and, you know, supply chain stuff and, you know, or funding falling through or funding coming through. Um, I think that just thinking on your feet and um, and just, you know, putting in the time if things go sideways on projects or trying to prepare ahead of time. Some of that transfers over from the film festival world. Yeah, that's awesome. I thought that was so cool when I was reading through your bio for the first time. I was like, an adventure film festival. <laughs> it was awesome. really fun. Well lasted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Do you, I'm trying to think of, I know I've seen some Trout Unlimited films about work on YouTube. Do you do any work with that at Trout Unlimited? I, yes, I've been lucky to work on 
two project films that were produced by Trout Unlimited. I've worked on another two that I actually just contracted out with a local mm -hmm. film production team. But I've been lucky that there, yeah, I've been able to work with a colleague of mine, um, Josh Duplashane, who's our senior producer for TU. And really, I feel like understands our tone and storytelling, you know, kind of and look and feel for Trout Unlimited projects. And I kind of got lucky during COVID because he's based in Colorado mm -hmm. and a lot of his other more far-flung, potentially more exciting yeah. film projects got canceled because <laughs> he couldn't travel there. And I had, you know, funding and projects that for which I could, I needed a couple of short videos produced. And so, yeah, there was one, um, on the Tribasin project, which is up in the Upper Grays uh, River watershed. Mm -hmm. And that one ended up being produced in-house by TU and released through all the TU media outlets. And the same is about to happen with uh, the Spread Creek project film. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a couple questions. <laughs> sure. I was also thinking when you're talking about your master's work and what I read from your CV, I if I understand correctly, it was looking at trout losses to irrigation ditches in the Bitterroot Forest. Is that correct? It was in the Bitterroot Watershed. watershed. So. Okay. And, and actually, you're correct. I mean, ha about half of my locations were on, some might have been on public land and the other half or two thirds were on, um, on private land. So it was a mix. I was just thinking as I read it, it seems like that work really ties in well to what you, I'm assuming you do at Trout Unlimited. And I was curious, going into that, if you knew you wanted to do projects that worked with private landowners and federal agencies, or like a better way to phrase that would be, did you know going in, you wanted to work with multiple stakeholders on all of these, on these types of projects? Yeah, that's it. That's a good question. And, and I feel like, you know, the, the work that I did at the time was sponsored by Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. And it was more to do with inventorying and understanding how many fish were being lost to which ditches on these two mm -hmm. different creeks. And then maybe some of the reasons why, some physical reasons with proportion of flow or orientation of the head gate or things like that. So it was more of an inventory of those systems and how, and irrigation systems and how they affected the fishery. But through the course of that work, working with landowners, and then there were a couple of nonprofits in the area at the time working on uh, water leasing um, on one of the streams, as well as interested in fish screens and some of these other solutions. I really wanted to make sure that the inventory work was actually hopefully used and, mm -hmm. you know, for a conservation outcome. And that was the part I felt like coming out of my grad project that I really wanted to see happen, but it, you know, I wasn't really in a position. There weren't any jobs or anything in in that area that at the time. Mm -hmm. The other part of it was that you know, working in the Bitterroot, I was looking at all these different tributaries that pretty much ran dry every single towards the mouth right before their confluence with the with the Bitterroot River, and contrasting that with the work Trout Limited was doing with the Blackfoot Challenge and the Blackfoot River drainage, which really isn't that far away as the crow flies. Mm -hmm. um, and just seeing like, not only just the scale of it and then therefore the impact, you it really just demonstrated, you know, how much trust that needs to be built and how many yeah. different partners need it need to get involved in order to actually move the needle on some of these issues. Some of these, you know, water is a complicated issue in the West, especially lack of it. And so 
I think that was really what made me interested in the work Trout Unlimited was doing and just trying to get into the conservation side of things. Yeah, absolutely. So now in your current role, what kind of work do you do as the Northwest Wyoming Program Director? Sure. I would say, you know, over half my time is acting as a traditional project manager for Trout Unlimited. And that means really focused on reconnection and restoration projects in the upper snake watershed or what we call the Snake River headwaters, which is essentially um, the upper snake in Wyoming, including the Salt River watershed. And so, you know, I started out, my title had started out as Snake River headwaters project manager, but over time, and in I think somewhat by virtue of some of these others maybe less traditional skill sets that I brought with me to the job, including working with the community and communications and fundraising. I really um, set out to also grow our local program. And so in addition to working on projects, I also do um, fundraising and, you know, donor relations. I do communications. I work with the local chapter quite a bit, and we also do youth education programs with the local seventh grade, a program called Adopted Trout. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I, I've been thinking about how to expand our capacity in this area. You know, when, before I started, we didn't have a Trout Unlimited staff person working on projects in this area. And now looking back, it seems crazy that we yeah. didn't have that um, <laughs> because, you know, from a conservation perspective, this is really going to be one of the, the major last strongholds for cutthroat trout. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got the high elevation, we've got relatively few non-natives. And so, yeah, when we think about resiliency and persistence in the face of climate change, like this is this is some of the best cutthroat trout country that you can think of. And so one of the things that I've been able to do is look into grant funding and private fundraising to create a new staff position in the Salt River watershed. Also just being, I feel like when, when I first started, I was very focused and still am on finding projects and doing everything that needs to be done to develop them from an idea all the way to completion. But I'm also hoping to create space for, we've been talking about some other bigger picture issues in the area, like water management from the dams and how they may affect flows and fish and macroinvertebrates mm-hmm. and things like that. And so I think having, um, you know, having put in the time in this watershed and leading, uh, we also lead a, a fisheries coordination meeting with, you know, about 20 or 30 stakeholders every year and kind of growing from that, we're, we're also hoping to establish a new watershed group in this area and kind of try to tackle some of some of the more big picture um, watershed planning issues and opportunities that are out there. Yeah, that's so cool. I really admire a lot of the work that Child Unlimited does. It's kind of very inspiring, the, the work that gets done. It's really exciting. couple follow-up questions. When you were talking yeah. about the dams, is that the Snake River dams or are there other dams closer to Jackson that you were referring to? I'm talking about specifically last fall, we had some concerns, the community had concerns about, and certain agency partners as well, about just, you know, we had fairly high water releases Mm -hmm. from Jackson Lake Dam um, towards Palisades Reservoir because of needing to meet irrigation water demands in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And then also just 
having to transition from delivering that water to storing it and the abrupt, the relative abruptness or perceived relative abruptness of that transition, um, you know, made folks key into that water management more than they have in recent years. And it's definitely driven by drought. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it it is in a snake river system, but I think, you know, if you've heard of TU's snake river dams or lower snake campaign, those are the four, there are four on the lower snake, you know, uh, that are more part of that snake to Columbia river system. Yeah. You know, Sam more to do with salmon migrations and persistence. Cool. And then as far as cutthroat, I feel like I should know this because I work on Yellowstone cutthroat, but is it mainly Yellowstone cutthroat there or are there also the, what is it? The snake river finds spotted. Do you have those as well? It's, that is a great question. And hopefully something that we can learn or learn more about through an ongoing study with the Yellowstone cutthroat trout work group and um, Dr. Katie Wagner's lab um, mm-hmm. at the university of Wyoming they're actually doing using some newer genetic research to look into kind of some of these questions. But I think the best way to explain it is that with current genetic techniques and past, you know, recent analysis, their snake river cutthroat trout are considered the same as Yellowstone cutthroat trout. Okay. But phenotypically and in this area, they look different. Snake river cutthroat trout, a lot, I would say a lot of them look different. And they are called fine spotted for a reason versus what you might see in a Yellowstone cutthroat trout in Montana, where they typically have the larger spots. Snake river cutthroats in this watershed typically have like more salt and pepper, smaller spots. But that said, you know, they are either considered a subspecies or a subpopulation of Yellowstone cutthroat trout. Okay. In the Wyoming Game and Fish Department um, manages them as their own kind of trout, mm-hmm. but not, not so much to differentiate between sizes of spots, but they basically call cutthroat trout in the snake river watershed, snake river cutthroat trout. Okay. Gotcha. So, <laughs> federally okay. and in Idaho and Montana, they would consider them all one and the same yellow. Okay. Cutthroat trout, so I don't know. <laughs> so I'm sure there's a listener out there that can stand to correct me, but right. that is my current <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually, I'm really glad I asked that because I know I've heard of snake river fine spotted, but I'm like, I actually know how different they are. So I was curious. So we talked a little bit about the film that you all will be coming out with about the spread Creek fish passage project. And so I wanted to dive in a little bit more on that project because I know you have a lot of them. So we could be here all day if we wanted to talk about all of those (laughs) with this project. I was wondering if you could give a little background on the restoration. So why this project started and then what progress has been made or is left to be done. Sure. So this project started way before my time. Trout Unlimited, you know, has been working in in Wyoming for well over a decade now. And the original, what we what we call the first phase of the Spread Creek Fish Passage project, that happened in 2010. There used to be a channel spanning concrete dam that blocked all passage of cutthroat trout and any other native fish into the Spread Creek watershed. Spread Creek is a fairly um, decent sized freestone tributary of the Snake River, flows into the Snake River, kind of it drains Bridger Teton National Forest and wilderness areas, then flows through Grand Teton National Park and joins the Snake River south of 
Moran and North and Moose. And so in 2010, there was a dam that the infrastructure is owned by Grand Teton National Park. The site of the project is actually located on on Forest Service land, but it was aging, it was falling apart. And, and so TU approached the park to see if we could essentially help them remove the dam, open up fish passage and get them their irrigation water through a different type of system. And so that's what happened in 2010. A new irrigation system went into place. A series of rock weirs were used. And then the irrigation water, you know, about two thirds of it goes north or three quarters of it goes north to Grand Teton National Park lands that are irrigated for a cattle grazing lease. And then the other water goes to the Triangle X and Moosehead ranches. And so that, that all happened in 2010. And then I feel like since 2010, there's several things happened and I would put them in kind of in the, kind of in the bucket of adaptive management slash, Mm -hmm. you know, flashier flows. And so there were some very big water years and those rock diversions that were put in, it was noted that essentially they weren't robust enough to withstand too much greater than a 10 year flow. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we had some years that we had two or three years since in the past decade that are way above a 10 year, 10 year flood. So that happened, kind of caused damage to the irrigation infrastructure and a lot of bank and channel erosion as well. And then at the same time, there was a USGS long-term study that's still happening, Dr. Robert Alchokichi, and um, there was some funding for him as well as Game and Fish in the park to help figure out were fish, are fish from the Snake River able to get past the old dam site now that passage has been opened up and can they actually mm-hmm. get past and spawn in those upper headwaters of Spread Creek? And, you know, it was determined, yes, they could. But another thing that was happening is that when fish would turn around to either migrate back out to the snake or if they're offspring, you know, the, the juveniles are out migrating out as well as non-game fish and species of concern like bluehead suckers they were getting stuck in irrigation ditches. Mm-hmm. And it, it seemed like an important opportunity to work on a potential project to address the fish entrainment, particularly because the, the infrastructure is owned by Grand Teton National Park and they have a mission to take care of their native species and as the main irrigator. And so essentially since when I very first got started with TU in 2016, we've been working with a bunch of stakeholders. I think that the first part, we had to get our arms wrapped around, you know, what what does the project follow-up project look like? From a fisheries perspective, from a TU perspective, to be honest, we were the most interested in addressing the entrainment Mm-hmm. And doing that through a fish screen, but listening to the irrigators, the park and the two ranches I mentioned, and looking at the landscape, it was clear that we also had to double down and make the irrigation infrastructure uh, more robust and more usable for the water users and also fix some of the bank erosion and channel erosion at the same time. And so that's kind of what the project is right now. It's fish screen diversion, uh, rehabilitation, and bank and channel stabilization. And we got, you know, originally had hoped to implement the project in 2020 Mm -hmm. because of COVID and grant funding and a number of factors. We pushed it to last fall. 
And last fall, we got all of the in-stream work done. So that's the diversion and the bank and channel work. And what is left is the fish screen. And so we are working on that as we speak. It's been a really rough go. Um, we went from having no precipitation for months and months and months mm-hmm. to having it all this spring, which has been really hard for getting in equipment and yeah. contractors in and concrete and all kinds of things. And so I'm still hopeful we can get the fish screen in this spring, but every day, every phone call, I don't know. (laughs) So we'll see. But yeah, the fish screen is what's left to to finish. And we just need a few things to go our way so that contractor can get the concrete poured and get everything in. But we are excited about the fish screen. The type is, it's called a corrugated water screen. And so it, it actually has no moving parts and is supposed to move the sediment well. And so thought it would be a good fit for the location because of all the sediment and also just to not have a lot of maintenance needs in theory. So we we will see. (laughs) That's exciting. (laughs) Yeah, it is is exciting slash nerve wracking. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Is there a lot of monitoring that'll go with this to see if like the fish screen is working as well as you think it is, or do you mainly put the stuff in and hope for the best? I think that there will be some monitoring but it's going to be pretty minimal. I think the monitoring is at this point, mostly to make sure things are built according to the plans and that things at the, and that the fish screen is working, but yet like that, now that you mentioned it, yes. What, one of the things we should do is shock the ditches and make sure that it's truly passing fish. So Mm -hmm. um, that's, yeah, we do plan to do that. Um, I need to put it on the list. (laughs) With the, the restoration work that happened before the fish screen went in is, was the channel fairly incised before? And is it like adding in willows or what is entailed in the on the ground work for that part? For the channel work, to be honest, it's, it's kind of a tricky location right there where the spread Creek comes out of kind of a tighter Canyon and then spreads out onto an alluvial fan Mm -hmm. Um, with a a bunch of cobble and boulders and other type of material. And so it's sort of in a geomorphic transition zone is what I've been told. Um, I'm not a geomorphologist, so I just repeat what I've heard. (laughs) And that makes it a little bit unpredictable in terms of how, how the channel will react. But what we have seen is that it's the channel has down cut, scoured out down as well as laterally. And so what we've done is first of all, with the diversion, we brought in a significant amount of rock to create what's called a rock riffle diversion structure. So instead of individual rock weirs, there's just a mass of rock that's acting mm-hmm. to check the water elevation up for irrigation. And then around that kind of project area corridor because it's national forest land and it's been parts of it have been washing away in certain years. We, they had, there was a road that completely washed out on the access road into the site that had to get rebuilt. And so what we've done is to sort of preempt that in the near future, we've put in a couple of additional cross veins for stabilization, ELJ structures or engineered log jams that kind of deflect mm-hmm. the water away from the force of the water away from the banks. And then we put in some tow rock with wood. So essentially a combination of riprap type rock bank sloping and a bunch of large trees down at the water level to soften it a little bit and 
and just essentially protect the banks and channel in the project area and, and protect the campsites that are right around there and the irrigation infrastructure. Cool. Yeah, it's, I had one class on fish habitat restoration here so far. And so I was curious what methods y'all were using for that. (laughs) So outside of work, we mentioned in your bio that you're also a member of the Jackson Hole Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Collective. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what the collective is and how you're involved with that program. Sure. So um, it is a group uh, locally based in Jackson that I joined, I believe last fall. (laughs) Time is moving strangely for me. But yeah, and it is a group of local leaders that are invested or interested in making our community more equitable and just and inclusive. And, you know, I was invited by some friends I have in the community and I knew other folks in the group as well. There are people, you know, BIPOC, people of color, people straight and LGBTQ plus. And so like they're, they're people from all walks of life that are invested in making this community a better place, a better space, you know, to be truthful, Jackson and Wyoming. Uh, Jackson's probably a little bit more diverse than the rest of Wyoming, but it's still, you know, not necessarily the most. And so um, I think particularly with me, having a kid a year and a half ago almost now and thinking about raising my son in a community that's predominantly white or white dominant it made me feel like I needed to be a part of this group um, once I was invited and just try to give back and and make sure that you know he grows up in a community that you know values him for for who he is and that they're you know and so I don't know if I, what I will do to that end, but um, yeah. for now, I, I'm a newer part of that group. There are definitely folks in the group that have a lot of experience in terms of, you know, working on DEI work at institutional levels, more so than, you know, me and their folks that, you know, they lead trainings or help provide feedback on community surveys and things like that. Um, you know, to provide another lens. I think that there are a lot of, there are quite a few well-intentioned folks that want to, to be more inclusive and equitable and, and, but not everyone has the tools and knows, you know, knows how to do them or have, you know, has done the work on themselves to really understand how they fit into some of these conversations. And I, I would say, I don't, I don't really know how much I, I bring to the table aside from my own experience and I've been, I've agreed to kind of help plan just a couple of simple hiking, you know, walks basically for people of color in the community is starting with members of our group, but we're hoping to expand it and just create some of those spaces um, for people to get together. And then beyond that, I'm also a member of the Ripple Effect, which is an internal TU staff group. Um, where there are a lot of us working in smaller groups, we've made space to meet and um, talk about how to make TU a more diverse and equitable and inclusive work environment or place to volunteer with, et cetera. So I'm part of that as well. Very cool. I am often very sad that we're not like, I just kind of wish we were already there in a lot of senses, because I feel like we're missing out on a lot of really valuable opinions and mindsets. And so it's exciting that these organizations and collectives are happening and working towards that, but it would be nice to, nice if we were just there. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's overwhelming to think about like all the things, all the work that could be done and has, you know, yet to be done. But I think, I think that's a big reason of why I joined the collective was just, I was asked and it seemed like something I ought to do and, and hopefully something I can add value to over time. Yeah, absolutely. Another question I like to ask everybody that I interview for this podcast, because I think it's really easy to focus in on, at least while at, at me as a grad student, it's easy to focus in on my identity as a scientist and kind of forget I'm a person outside of that. And so I always like to ask, what are your hobbies and interests outside of work? Sure. I do. Yeah. I think you kind of covered it a little bit in my bio, you know, love river trips and fishing and floating the river just generally. I still love and used to climb a lot, but mm -hmm. When our climbing gym in Jackson closed many, many years ago now, yeah. um, that made it a little bit harder to keep, keep up with climbing. And then, you know, biking, I do in the shoulder seasons, I do like rollerblading, nice. <laughs> cooking local food um, and, and playing music. And, and then, of course, hanging out with my kiddo and showing him yeah. the world a little bit. Yeah. And traveling when, when we can. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it's getting a little bit better slowly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, that brings us to our final five questions. So this is a group of questions we ask each guest that comes on the show. And the first one is, what is your favorite fish? My favorite fish is the Snake River cutthroat trout because it's the fish that I've really dedicated my time towards learning about and understanding and trying to do good projects four but I will say though my second favorite fish is bull trout nice. <laughs> from my grad work from having done spent a lot of time underwater snorkeling and looking mm -hmm. at fish I think bull trout are really cool yeah so <laughs> those are number one and two yeah absolutely all right what is your favorite memory from your career so far you know that that's a really hard question that I don't, I don't even know. I, I racked my brain and I'm not sure I'm going to have a great answer mm -hmm. for it, but I would say my favorite memories in general are the ones involving people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think of one of the fish rescues that some of the fish rescues that we do in the fall where guides and partners come out and we actually go and bucket fish out of irrigation ditches and put them back in the stream. And I think, you know, partially because it's usually at the end of a really long field season and because it's just a bunch of people that care about fish getting together. Those are, those are some of my, those are some of my favorite days. And I'm sure I will also have, it'll soon be a favorite memory when we get um, the spring green. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if and when we get it done, right. that'll be one as well. But yeah, I think just be, being outside and being out on the land and along rivers with people are the ones, some of the ones that stand out the most. So yeah, for sure. Okay. You might already have this, but what is your dream job and or location? So working for Trout Unlimited in Jackson is my dream job and location. When I first moved to Jackson, I was taking, planning to take you know, this is a story you'll hear in this area a thousand times over. I was planning to take a year off after grad school mm -hmm. and climb and ski and just live here. And I met a bunch of my close friends. I met my future husband and decided I was more interested in 
taking time to live in Jackson than, Mm -hmm. you know, going straight to move somewhere else for fisheries. And, you know, I, I will also say that thinking about jobs and things like that after grad school, I was less aware of it than I am now, but it was important for me to live in a community where I felt safe as mm-hmm. a person of color. And there are definitely locations in the West where like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take a job because yeah. it, you know, I wouldn't be sure. Maybe even if safety was an issue, I'm not sure if I'd be comfortable or happy or, you know, just feel like I'm part of the community. So right. Jackson, I definitely feel part of this community. I've been here for a really long time. And um, at the, when I was working at the land trust, I joined the local Trout Unlimited chapter board and because I wanted to, you know, I missed working with fish and water and started to think about, we started thinking about, you know, we don't have any staff capacity here and wouldn't it be great to have a staff person Mm -hmm. raise all this money through our banquet. And so, you know, I think one of my friends said, you manifested the shit of that job (laughs) is what she said. And I think at the end of the day, that is kind of how I feel. You know, I wanted to work for Trout Eleven in Jackson. There wasn't a job, helped raise some of the funds to help get the position, applied for it, had to go through all the hoops and here I am. So yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. It does seem like there's couple schools of like either just like move around until you finally find the job that works well or stay in one spot and And make the connections exactly yeah I definitely did the second second strategy yeah very cool though that's exciting that gives me more hope I'm like I can just manifest my dream job (laughs) yeah I mean you should yeah (laughs) if money was not an issue what is one project you would like to work on so I I think in this area one of the one of the projects I'd like to work on, if yeah, if money was an issue, if logistics and other constraints, you know, I feel like there actually there's two that are kind of bigger. Um, one is, you know, that the Snake River for a lot of Jack- the Jackson Hole Valley, the Jackson Hole area is confined between the Army Corps levee system, essentially. And I, you know, feel like that's affected the long-term health of the snake and, you know, cutting off its access to floodplain and, and just decreasing the quality of habitat overall in the main stem river. And so I think that would be something big to tackle, very, very difficult and kind of, but I think that that would be one um, worthy of us pursuing for all the reasons I mentioned in terms of this being a cutthroat trout stronghold. And then another one is, you know, the lower Grovant River is one of the only streams around here. I mean, who knows with the prolonged drought, it may change, but it's one of the only ones in this area that noticeably goes dry in low water years towards Mm. its confluence. And there's been some hydrology and work and looking into, you know, some, some past study into the system, but not anything that has kind of advanced towards the realm of like solutions. And so that's another one. Yeah. Okay. Our last question is if there's one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think maybe it's just the frame of mind I'm in these days, but I would say the importance of having compassion for yourself and others. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in the work that I do at Trout Unlimited, you know, I work with a lot of people and different people at different agencies, different landowners. And I think that that's always important to keep in mind um, is just under trying to 
see things from other people's perspective, I think helps the cause in the long term. Yeah. But then also having compassion for yourself. I tend to, I tend to be, you know, kind of a workaholic overachiever type and Mm -hmm. put a lot of pressure on myself to get things done well and efficiently. And, you know, I think that um, having a kid has taught me, given me a little more perspective and, yeah. And I think it's important to remember that self-care part as well, which I'm not very good at, but yeah. I'm trying to. <laughs> it's always a work in progress. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out. So if people want to get more information about the Spread Creek Project or your work or just get a hold of you, how can they do that? They can email me at leslie.steen at tu.org, tu for Trout Unlimited, or, you know, it's not the easiest to get to, but if you go to um, the Jackson Hole Trout Unlimited chapter website, there should be a link to um, the Snake River Headwaters project website, or I can I can send it to you as well. Yeah, yeah, I can include that as a link in the show notes so people can just click on it and go from there. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. If people would like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter and the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheries pod, or send us an email to feedback at the fisheries podcast.com. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or the fisheries podcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome fisheries podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Hindley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, have compassion for yourself and others.